Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Lucinda Rouse. Each week we bring you half an hour of discussion and debate about the important goings-on in the charity world. We're kicking off this first episode of the new year with two of the sector's leaders to ask what 2024 might have in store for charities. And after that, in Charity Changed My Life, we'll be hearing from the resident of an almshouse in Bath about how the St John's Foundation transformed her life for the better as she entered a new chapter. But first, we are joined by our news editor, Andy, to talk about a big piece of third sector content which came out at the end of last year. Hi, Andy. Happy New Year. Hello, and to you, Emily. So just before we went on our festive break, you published Third Sector's most recent charity pay study, which is always a hotly anticipated moment for us. What did you find this time around? Well, we've been doing this every two years since 2013. And this year it's been quite a different exercise because since we did the last one two years ago, the Charity Commission has updated its online register so that now you can search by how much people are earning in the highest wage bracket. So it's made it much easier for us to kind of find all those charities where people are receiving high wages. And what that's meant is that the numbers have gone up by quite a bit in terms of the amounts that people are getting if they want to be in this top 100 list. So for example, in 2021, the lowest salary to get onto the top 100 list was between 140 and 150,000 pounds. Whereas this year, the threshold for entry to the top 100 is almost £220,000. So it's gone up a lot. One of the other major things that it's worth noting, of course, with any of this stuff is that these are not normal salaries. Akivo, the charity leaders body, do their annual salary study. And I think this year they found that the average salary paid to a charity chief executive was something like £58,000. The median in this list is £265,000, which is way removed from what a normal, if you like, charity chief executive is being paid. Absolutely. And that new way of searching using the Charity Commission Register has also thrown up a lot of unexpected names, unfamiliar names, certainly. Andy, I know that you and I, when we were going through that original data set, were scratching our heads for a good while about even how we would categorise two of the charities that make that top 100 list. So there is plenty in there that you won't expect, even if you have visited our charity pay study in the past. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly fair to say that there are very few household name charities in there. I mean, you've got some of the very largest ones. Cancer Research UK, obviously the largest fundraising charity in the country, is in the list, as are things like Bernardo's, Age UK. But those are few and far between, to be honest. A lot of the others are big grant-making foundations, think tanks, and then a lot of professional associations that are obviously representing their members, but they're still registered charities. But they tend to pay very high salaries compared with sort of mainstream, if you like, charities. So tell us, who is number one on the list? Well, anyone who's been following the Third Sector Pay Study probably won't be surprised to hear that the Wellcome Trust has the highest earner in the UK voluntary sector, with their Chief Investment Officer Nick Mokes being paid in the region of £4.7 million in the most recent set of accounts. Now, people might be spluttering over their cornflakes hearing that, but what Wellcome says is that they employ a team of specialist investment managers who get paid market rate to manage their enormous investment portfolio, which is worth something like £37 billion. And the charity says that since they've started doing that, their results have been far better than they would have had otherwise. And they would have spent hundreds of millions of pounds on 
handing over the management of the fund to another kind of arm's length investment company. So they say it actually is better value, even though it sounds weird in a way that someone should be paid so much because Wellcome actually have the top seven people in terms of pay. Mm. And if we separated them out individually, they would be numbers one to seven on the list, but we just have the highest entry for each charity. Well, the full charity pay study is now available to read and enjoy on our website, thirdsector.co.uk, and it has been fully reimagined for a digital format. So Andy, thank you so much for coming in this morning to tell us about that. We're now going to dust off the crystal ball and, as seems to have become a tradition for our first podcast episode of the year, have a look at what the next 12 months might have in store for the voluntary sector. We're very happy to be joined for this discussion by Jane Ide and Sue Tibbles. Jane is the Chief Executive of the Association of Chief Executives of Voluntary Organisations, or Akivo. Sue is the Chief Executive of the Sheila McKechnie Foundation, which seeks to build the confidence and effectiveness of civil society to affect change and champion campaigners. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi. Hello and Happy New Year. Yes, absolutely. Happy New Year. I hope everybody had a wonderful Christmas break. Now, in the absence of a psychic ability to see into the future, there obviously isn't a great deal of certainty about what the year ahead holds and it would probably be foolish to try to make too many guesses. But what we do know is that there will be a general election and the economic climate is going to continue to be very challenging. So looking at the first of those certainties, I'd like to know what you both think an election year is likely to mean for the voluntary sector. And Jane, could we start with you, please? Yes, I think is the answer I immediately come up with. It is going to be a general election year and we don't really quite know what that's going to look like. Certainly at this precise moment, I don't know exactly when that election is going to happen. My take on it is that we have got a year or two halves ahead of us, whenever it is. Let's say it's going to be May, let's say it's going to be in October, one of those two. We've got the run-up to the election, and then we've got the post-election period. And the run-up to the election, all my instincts are telling me that that is going to get messy. It's going to get, I suspect it could be quite a febrile environment for everybody. I think, you know, we've certainly I've been around the block enough times to know that you get that sort of pre-pre-election period, the phony election period, and then you get the actual official campaigning. And, you know, we could see before Christmas that the temperature was already starting to rise, that, you know, people are sort of jockeying for position. That's been going on for a while now. And I think the more that that goes on, the more chances are that people on all sides of the political spectrum They will want to be generating their headlines, they want to be grabbing votes, and therefore they will be saying and doing things that will be headline grabbing. And the danger, I think, of the big, more than a danger, I think the very real situation for our sector is going to be that in the same way as we've seen over the last however many years it is now, three, four, five years, some of our sector, not all of our sector by any means, but for some of our sector, there will be the danger of being caught in the crossfire. And there is a very real chance that some smaller parts of our sector or smaller segments of our sector will be deliberately targeted in the way that we saw perhaps in the autumn around refugee policy, around homelessness. And I think that's going to be a very challenging environment for our sector to be working in while it is still basically trying to do the day job in very, very difficult circumstances. I think post the election, who knows? I quite often refer back to 
2009-2010 when I was actually in the civil service and we knew we were going to get a change of administration. What I don't think anybody was expecting at that point was a coalition and the very particular nature of that and what that meant in terms of policy definition and people just simply not knowing what they were going to do for weeks, if not months after the election. If I had to put 50p on it right now, I suspect we could be looking at a small majority for whoever wins and possibly some deals having to be made and positions having to be agreed and it could get messy again afterwards. My instinct at the moment is I don't think we're going to get the sudden massive landslide in any direction that would give our sector and our country real clarity and real certainty about what's going to come next. And Sue, of course, campaigning and the right, the ability of charities to campaign effectively is very, very much the wheelhouse of the Sheila McKechnie Foundation. I wonder, from your perspective, what do you think are going to be the most important things for charities to bear in mind as they move towards that election? So I think Jane's right that we know already that we're in a sort of pretty polarised public debate and depends what your charity does but for a great number they're caught up in really a kind of politicking from political parties around issues that they see advantage in weaponizing whether that's right it's refugees or homelessness on obviously for a great many charities that isn't the case so I guess we need to look at this from the point of view of actually what a change of government might mean for the sector as a whole which is probably ironically relatively steady state because of the economy. And we all know that, you know, if Labour win, they're coming into a pretty difficult fiscal environment. So the economic pressures remain. But in terms of voice and campaigning, I think actually the year ahead looks really exciting for the sector. I mean, our observation is that charities generally have been speaking up and out more and with more confidence In recent months and years, it feels as if the sector has regained some of its sort of confidence in campaigning that I think it did lose over a period of years for a number of reasons. We've seen some great coalitions campaigning amongst big, well-known charities, the coming together of Wildlife Trusts, National Trust and ROSPB last year around the mini budget was notable. And then, of course, we've got some amazing grassroots campaigners who are coming up and pushing through, whether that's someone like Cuello Tuenabea or, you know, big social movement activism. So I think it's a moment of, we're going to talk about this, I think, a bit later on, but it feels to me as if it could be a really powerful moment of reset for the sector and how it sees itself and what we think charity is for and what we think charity does in society And a kind of remembering that isn't just providing relief, it's not just attending to the problems and applying the sticking plaster, but it's also being really confident agents of reform and helping get upstream of problems and stop them occurring in the first place. But that right and that space is still to be secured and fought for. And it isn't a done deal because we know historically that for different reasons, both left and right have tended to view charities with scepticism at best. And then, of course, we've seen some pretty outright hostility in recent years as well. But I think, you know, a really interesting time for renewal. Well, it's very nice to hear from you, Sue, that you have some optimism for the year ahead. And without wanting to dampen the tone too much, I think it's important that we reflect on a trend that we saw increasing throughout 2023, which was charity closures. 
perhaps the most noteworthy piece of news in that respect last year was the closure of Children England, the infrastructure body for charities supporting children. And Jane, I was wondering if you could give us your view on the likelihood or not of further charity closures in 2024 in light of the very challenging economic conditions that we're currently in. It is a really difficult one to call. And it's one where you really wish you did have a great crystal ball. I think, sadly, my instinct is that we are going to continue to see some charities close. I think what we have seen, and this is more anecdotal than it is necessarily data-driven, because I think the data lags on this, because obviously it takes a while for this to feed through into things like the regulators and reporting and so on. But you know, you guys know, because you're reporting on it, that's where we tend to see it first in many ways, that there seems to have been more headlines around this over the last four or five months than perhaps there have been what feels like certainly since I came into the sector, which was 2017. And it feels as though we're seeing the reality now in a way we didn't see it in the pandemic when we thought it was going to happen. The things that we see in terms of charities closing will be the tip of the iceberg. I think there are many charities of all scales now who I'm hearing from in terms of their leadership talking to us at Akivo, who are cutting services or cutting costs in order to get through this financial year to be able to plan ahead into the next financial year. Things are very, very tight. And and I think that is the reality. You said at the beginning, Lucinda, the two things we know about 2024 is the general election and a tight financial situation. And, and those are the two certainties I think we can have. It's not going to get any easier. It is concerning to see what's happening because these are not charities that have run to the end of their lives. There's always a place for that. No charity should exist just for the sake of it. We are seeing charities that we would expect to have purpose and impact and are well run but just have not quite managed to make it to that corner to the better days financially. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and and financial instability is is certainly the touchstone that we're seeing from our end in terms of so many of these closures. And Cathy Evans, who was the chief executive of Children England, said, we still have such a long way to go, but we can't continue to function anymore financially. And it's in too tricky a place. And this, of course, is not just about the fact that they you know, have been suffering under the cost of living crisis, as so many in the sector and beyond have, but it also is about the fact that they have endured you know a decade of austerity and they had their government funding cut 10 years ago and that has been really really difficult in terms of them making ends meet for a very very long time so sue i wonder you talked briefly there a minute ago about this idea of a powerful moment of reset as we head towards an election i wonder if you have any thoughts on the sort of directions you think that you know the charity state relationship could potentially go in you know can we have some kind of optimism at all about whether we could see things improve under a change of government see more local authority funding maybe coming back or just having a generally better relationship between the sector and those in power yeah i mean i think in many ways the ball is in our hands to set out a very current and positive understanding of what charities do and how they work You might know that we've been hosting a group of CEOs of charities with this charity reform group who have come together to build the confidence of charities to play their full part in reform. 
And our research shows that lots of people outside the sector don't really have a good handle on really what a lot of charities do. And I guess I'm thinking about sort of bigger charities that have resources and employ people, not exclusively, but largely. And still, a lot of the sort of current tropes associated with charities are quite out of date. You know, we're sort of seen as largely voluntary run, you know, they're just to pick up the pieces maybe seen as being pretty low quality, unprofessional, you know, you kind of can see that the general reputation of charities isn't that strong. Whereas in fact, charities are dealing with some of the most entrenched and complex problems of our day. We all know that with great creativity and resourcefulness. And actually are organisations that we can see, given the state is under such pressure, are going to be absolutely vital going forward in making sure not only that there is a safety net for lots of people, but that we continue to tackle those very complex problems. But I think, you know, it's therefore the onus is on us in the sector to set out that stall and to go and build those very positive relationships. I know some of that work is happening. But of course, then, whichever party prevails, the incoming government has got to be persuaded that public money is well invested in charities, but at a reasonable rate. Because, of course, we all know that the commissioning has squeezed budgets down. Lots of amazing charities being pushed out of markets because bigger charities are able to undercut the price, but possibly putting themselves at risk as well. So there's been a sort of a race to the bottom financially. And you mentioned Cathy Evans. She's a brilliant commentator on the problem of conventional markets in the charity or social sector So I think it's about making a very different case for the role of charity or what I personally would call the social sector. I know this is kind of a big thing to put out there, but I wonder whether the whole concept of charity is a bit outmoded. And really what we want to talk about is a social sector that stands alongside the private and the public sectors as three legs of a stool without which any of which the stool doesn't stand. And of course, we know that Charities is just a legal classification, whether it's a charity, a kick, a social enterprise, it's the whole of the not-for-profit sector that's playing such an important role. So I think it is exciting, but I think we've got to fight for it. That's certainly a compelling proposition. Indeed. So in the short term, what do you think needs to change in terms of the relationship between the voluntary charity sector and the state and the private sector in order for it to fulfil its its role to the best of its abilities? It would be amazing if we could have a more complex understanding of impact and value and the value that the sector brings. It still sort of eludes us to see the sector as doing anything other than delivering profit. We're still very much caught up in quite sort of commercial approaches to impact measurement and they don't work for the sorts of people and communities that so many organisations are working with. But then there are some really sort of foundational points. You know, there's, there's one around, you know, the arguments about whether public money can be spent on charities pushing for campaigning. I mean, the so-called sock puppet narrative that's been incredibly influential over the last 10 years, first talked about in 2012. The idea that On the one hand, charities provide services and on the other, they campaign is a false distinction. The two are intimately linked and it is the evidence of doing the work that actually fuels charities' ability to speak up and advocate. So the two can't be separated, but that's got to be addressed because at the moment it's a big block to public spending and investment into charities. But of course, you know, the money needs to be there 
and lots of charities rely on local authority, local government money, absolutely sort of stripped to the bone. There's something for me as well about the amount of investment in the sector for innovation and for creativity and also investment that gives the sector a bit of resilience. I was very struck when the Silicon Valley Bank was in peril and there was a big rush to sort of help all the sort of tech entrepreneurs, which may well have been the right thing to do. But I remember thinking at the time, what about all the innovation and entrepreneurship that there is in our sector? And where's the investment and the belief that actually you need to keep this sector going? And I know that Jane and, you know, and NCVO have been doing a brilliant job with others in keeping, making that case and making that argument. But that also resides on people understanding what this sector does, the value that it delivers and why it's absolutely central to social welfare in the immediate term, but also tackling the bigger problems around inequality and climate as well. And I think if I can add a little bit to that as well, because I think Sue's exactly right, and I'm going back to her point earlier about the opportunity for a reset, I think it would be harder if the current administration continues, just because by definition, you know, people who are already in post, you haven't got the same opportunity for building new relationships in the same way. But if we do get a a new administration, I really hope there's an opportunity for our sector, not just to be seen, but to see itself as an equal partner in that triumvirate that Sue talked about. And that knowledge and that understanding and that deep connection with the causes that we serve, with the communities we serve, and what that can then bring into policy making. For me, that's the connecting tissue between what Sue describes as the policy campaigning side and the service delivery side. And I think it is easy to be quite gloomy about what lies ahead this year. I think one of my glimmers of hope is that there are some very sensible conversations being had not enough yet, but starting to be had about how we reset that relationship. And I I hesitate to reference the compact because I know a lot of people roll their eyes when you do, but some sense of actually there's a potential framework of an understanding of what public sector and civil society can do together and where business fits into that as well. Bearing in mind always that we talk about these as sectors and of course it's always about individuals. So, you know, those relationships have to be nurtured at every level. At times when people are going to be working under a great deal of pressure, particularly in local authorities. But I do think there is there is some hope there. It's not a quick fix by any means. It's a long-term thing. But if we can deliver that over the next year, 18 months, and give ourselves a really solid foundation for the next five, 10 years, then I would see that as a a year's work well done, so to speak. Certainly, I think there are probably very few quick fixes that we can expect to see in the next 12 months. And there, because many of the problems that we as a society are struggling with at the moment, and also that the charity sector itself is struggling with, are ones that have very deep, very, very complicated roots. And to do a slight shift away from this thinking around the sort of relationship between charity and states, and coming back to thinking about that importance of, of, of still building, maintaining and strengthening those really strong connections between causes and communities and making sure that the sector as a whole is one that is really, really representative of the people and the causes that it exists to support. I think another area probably that we'll be hoping to see more progress on is the ongoing challenge that the sector seems to experience around building its diversity and becoming a more diverse place to work. Now, I've been 
watching the conversation around this for three years now, which is quite astonishing. And I say three years specifically holding in mind the kind of wave of organizations and leaders that we had coming out in early 2020 saying we have to basically accept that as organizations and as a sector, we are structurally racist and we need to be doing more to improve that. And we need to redress that imbalance. And I know that Akivo, Jane, put out a pay inequalities survey at the end of last year, which I think you yourself described as quite frustrating. Mm. I wonder if you could sort of speak to that a bit. And what is it that you think leaders need to be doing now to be really actually pushing the dial in the right direction? Well, I think the pay inequality survey was one piece alongside the Warm Words Cold Comfort report that we published just at the sort of tail end of November, early December. And yes, I think in my forward to that report I, or to the survey, I think I used the word frustrating. Actually, I was bloody furious, but you don't quite say that in writing, so to speak, because I think the problem is, I don't think there's many people, if anybody in our sector now, hasn't acknowledged and recognised that we need to shift the dial on race equality, on anti-racism. I think what we are seeing, and the Warm Words Cold Comfort report really articulated this very well, drawing on the experience of people who've been, had bestowed upon them, shall we say, the role of, of leading some of this work within organisations in our sector. And they were telling us that, exactly as the title says, they are hearing lots of good intent, they're hearing lots of positive words, lots of commitments from people, but they are not seeing actual change. And I think there are a range of reasons for that. Some of them are legitimate, some of them less so, but none of them are justifiable, if I can use that phrase. I think we have to be making real change. I think a lot of it is around having some still a lack of confidence as to actually what does that mean in practice? How do we do this stuff? And we dance around it and we walk on eggshells and we end up sort of standing stuck in treacle as my mother used to say I think some of it is about resource you know Sue mentioned earlier that you know that there is this constant narrative still around our sector from funders from donors from government from everybody else as well that has an opinion on it about how do we spend the money that we are receiving and how do we use that to develop our cause and that can then mean it's very difficult for any charity to certainly at the smaller end of the scale to be able to invest in the work that needs to be done around this but if we don't really start to move not only are we failing our values as a sector and that's a big enough reason anyway on its own but if that wasn't a big enough reason we are really going to struggle in the years ahead to attract and retain a pool of talent to do the work that we want to do we've got enough competition for that talent from other parts of the world these days as it is you can you can go and do good things in other sectors now without having to come and work in our sector and we simply really have to just bite the bullet and get on with it and and one of the things I'm really excited about and if I'm really honest on a personal level slightly daunted by is we're in the middle of delivering the Home Truths 2 programme now and the next phase of it is going to be what we call the Further Foster 
piece of work which will bring together a cohort of leaders who have already committed, who have already started this journey. It's not the sort of you know first lesson in how to be anti-racist. It's, it's expecting a level of understanding of that, but coming together to work out how do we actually make this change. And the reason I'm daunted is because I'm going to be part of that cohort and I'm excited and nervous about it all at the same time but we've got to be honest about that and honest about those sorts of barriers and make sure that we actually do do the work that needs doing and it's not going to be easy and it's not a journey we're going to get to an end of but if we don't do something about it we are really not going to be living up to what our sector is capable of being. Yeah absolutely and it sounds like initiatives such as that at the sector level are going to be extremely worthwhile in countering this problem. I wonder if you had any thoughts on individual leaders of charities whether big or small listening to this thinking really need to work internally in this area of diversity in particular in the coming year are there any quick wins it depends where you're starting from to be quite honest i mean there are a number of things that we should all be thinking about we should be thinking about how equitable is our recruitment process how equitable is our environment when we bring people into our organisations. I've been seeing for years now, and you said, Emily, you've been watching this for three years. I, I remember back to 2017, 2018, and people starting to talk very openly about better recruitment processes. And then surprise, surprise, having recruited more diverse staff teams, we then saw those diverse staff teams leaving and not just leaving, but leaving and talking about why they were leaving and sharing that with their communities. And so we actually ended up potentially in a situation where we were further behind than we were to begin with. And I think at that most basic level, having to to think very carefully about that. But I think, if I'm really honest, one of the challenges, and I've talked about this with my colleagues around the Home Truths 2 programme, is the whole understanding of what anti-racism is and all the other elements that come around that intersectionality and so on, that is moving at such a pace that we have to run to keep up with it. And so even if you already think you've done a lot of stuff, you probably haven't done enough. You're probably already falling behind the curve. And I think the one thing I would say to anybody listening to this and thinking, yeah, I know I need to do this, but I don't know where to start, is you need expert support and you need to pay for that support because one of the things that we've really seen very clearly over the last couple of years is the people from the global majority communities who are working in this space are quite rightly saying you have to pay us for our labor you have to pay us for our knowledge and that's the very least we can do so we have to be able to put resources into it and i think you know and there are some funders who are really strong on this space already and many funders who are looking at this as part of how they fund organisations and it's part of the mix. But I think we have to have those grown-up conversations about how do we make this part of our core funding as an organisation. Nobody thinks twice about whether we pay somebody to do our payroll. We need to be you know, making sure that this is embedded into our budgets and our business plans as well. Looking ahead, obviously we've dealt with some big themes in this conversation. I wonder if either of you could offer up a positive final note for anybody who might be listening. What do you think that we have as a sector to look forward to in the coming year? And if there's really nothing that you can dredge up, do you have any sage wisdom or advice for voluntary sector workers who are gearing up to take on 2024? The stuff that keeps me going, that gives me cheer, is the knowledge that the people absolutely passionate 
about the issues that we all exist to advance extend way, way beyond charities there across society as a whole, in our communities, on the buses, living next door, and then in other sectors. So for us at SMK this last year, we've been reaching out to people working in the arts, which has been amazing, people working in design, people working in the private sector. There's just a really strong sense for me that the need to address issues of social inequality and climate justice and everything else that is attached to those two huge things, that the concern across society is growing. And the opportunity is for us to work with that interest and find common cause and collaborate. And so my sort of watchword for 2024 is to collaborate, meaning outside the sector, finding partnerships outside the sector, but also within the sector as well. And whether that's collaboration across big charities and the grassroots, whether that's collaboration across people of different backgrounds and experiences, it's how can we work together. We have got the knowledge and the expertise and the permission as not-for-profit organisations to do this work in a way that other sectors don't have. And if we work together on that constructively, SMK talks about social power. It's the power we hold when we're working without constraint. I still believe with a passion that our sector and wider civil society holds huge power that is underutilised and that collaboration is, for me, the key to unlocking it to a large extent, as well as sorting out all the constraints we talked about at the beginning and drawing on all of our talent to connect the conversation you were just having with Jane. I think actually building very much on what Sue said, I think my signs of hope we've talked about one which I think is the opportunity to start to reframe the relationship that the rest of the world has with our sector and we need to grasp that opportunity I think there are some really interesting conversations emerging and Sue will know this because she's been part of them with me about how leaders in our sector can think about systems leadership rather than just cause or individual organization related leadership and that has the potential to really unlock some really exciting and really profound change, I think, for the future. And I suppose, again, reflecting what Sue says about the, the power we have, Akiva members will have heard me, well, they'll have read me write about this and they'll have heard me say this if they've been at a, any of our events recently. But one of our members, Paul Parker, who's the recording clerk for the Quakers in Britain, lovely, lovely man, and he's given me his permission to quote him on this because I have quoted him many times now. We were in a conversation a couple of months ago And almost as an aside, he said, we have to remember that our job is to bring the big concepts into the conversation, love, hope, equity and justice. And I think we have a year of challenge ahead of us. And I would encourage everybody listening to this to think about how you pace yourself, how you take care of yourself, take that step back because you can go a lot further faster if you do. But we have a year ahead of us of some sort of political change, whatever happens. And with change comes opportunity, and we need to be keeping bringing those big concepts of love, hope, equity and justice into the conversation and into the work that we do. And I hope that's that's something that can keep us all, that could be our North Star, shall we say, for 2024. Here, here, Jane. <laughs> yes, here, here. Absolutely. That was wonderful. <laughs> 
Well, Jane and Sue, thank you both so much. Wishing you both a wonderful 2024 and look forward to seeing how that unrolls for everybody. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much indeed. Now we move on to Charity Changed My Life, in which we bring you the stories of people whose lives have been transformed for the better through the work of charities. Today, we take you to the city of Bath to hear from a resident of the St John's Almshouse in the city centre. The St John's Foundation has been providing almshouse accommodation since 1174, which today are addressing a local need for affordable accommodation tailored to independent living. And this particular resident, who is asked not to be named, is 85 years old and has spent the past 10 years living in one of the apartments. I came here in 2013 after my husband died and I'd come back from somewhere to live with my daughter who lived in Bath. When one's husband of 50 years dies, one's so desperately sad that you don't do much thinking. And it was my daughter who actually persuaded me that it would be a good idea. Shortly after I moved into this flat, the chaplain from St. John's came and called on me. I had help with putting up many pictures on the walls um, and the staff were always there if we needed them. When I came, I was very sad and the staff, you know, jolly me along and invited me to various things that happened. So I have joined two or three classes doing things I never did before. I do Pilates. I'm learning things all the time at my old age, which is great. And that helps with making different friends. And that is invaluable when you are um, an alone person. I'm alone, but I'm not lonely, if you see what I mean. And the other thing is that it's a block of flats, frankly, and I meet so many of the neighbours and we're all so friendly. And the other day, one um, resident said, could I just help her put a plaster on her back because she couldn't reach it? And so we do this sort of thing, even though, you know, Obviously, she gets professional help when needed, but we are around to, to help each other. And that is encouraged by St. John's. I have a lovely flat, lovely view. I'm checked up on every day to see that I'm OK, which is great. And the staff who do our care and the staff in the office are all so helpful and so friendly. It is a lovely atmosphere here. That was a resident of the St John's Armhouse Accommodation in Bath talking about how the charity has changed her life for the better. And if you would like your organisation to be featured in Charity Change My Life, we'd love to hear from you. All it takes is a short voice message from someone who has benefited from your services. And you can find details of how to get in touch in the show notes to this episode. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, we'll be joined by the Chief Analyst at Citizens Advice to learn about some of the trends they're seeing in terms of need and gaps in support. But for now, thanks to this week's guests, Sue and Jane, and our producer, Nav Pal, and thank you for listening. From all of us at Third Sector, we wish you a happy and healthy start to the year. <laughs>